Okay, here we go. Hebrews chapter 9, and we were reading some cross-references on verse 14. We did verse 14, but I had some more cross-references that I... No, no, we were on 15. 15. We were in the middle of verse 15, and let me read that verse. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And there's a couple things I need to talk about. We had not got to the issue of this call, the difference between the external call and the internal call. Uh, that's, that's a distinction that's necessary, and I'll show you why from the Bible. But there's also some more cross-references uh, to this passage. Where should we start here? How about with Richard? Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, and Olga, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and, hey Dan, <laughs> Revelation 5, 9, Leif, 2 Timothy 2, 10, and Keith, Titus 3, 7, um, Diane Bukowski, 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter 1, 3, and 4. Then there's some verses we're going to all turn to about this effectual call. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. As a matter of fact, that verse would be another one to address the issue of this those who have been called. Notice how it says, through which he called you. So this that's talking about the factual call. The, the one that people actually hear and respond to internally. If, if a guy, I'll, let me set the stage for this, and then we'll discuss it more looking carefully at some scriptures. If we go out here like we do in the summer, set up our sound system, cook the hot dogs and hamburgers, and the people come, and we preach the gospel. Here's who Jesus Christ is. Here's what he did. Here's why you need him. You need to repent and believe the gospel. That's the universal call. All right? Or the external call, depending on how you say it. Yeah, we're commanded to do that. That has to go out. So, if we want anybody to hear the internal call, that's the one where God pricks the heart and they're convicted and they realize the need um, and they do respond. But if we want that to happen, the first thing that needs to happen is the external one. All right? So everybody hears that, but some people hear it in, you know, like this parable of the sower and the seeds. They, you know, they go away or there's different responses to it, but they at least all hear it because it universally goes out. But the kind of call that we're talking about here and the one that Richard read is internal and effectual. It actually changes people. Um, and that would be the one, for example, when Jesus say, my sheep hear my voice. They hear the Lord. I mean, we used to have an old song we sing, I heard the Lord call my name. And, and that, that's really just another way of describing that internal call. Well, now, Paul kind of heard the internal call externally in a way when he saw Jesus, right? He says, who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting at all. <laughs> I suppose he could have. He, he had to hear the inner one, right, didn't he? Yeah. That's why we also call it the factual call. That's a very good way to describe it. Because it's one thing to know, gee, I should repent because I should get right with God, but it's another thing to actually do it. 
One thing we know that God is long-suffering towards the vessels that are fit for destruction. And when God says he's long-suffering, say it backwards, suffer long. It, ain't, it isn't like he just uh, saves us and has no uh, feelings for the lost. He suffered long over their unbelief. Yes, he does. Since from Revelation, from Genesis, Adam and Eve, all the way through Revelation, man is guilty, suffered long. So he desires that none perish. So when they do perish, it isn't just like God's out there picking and he doesn't care. Believe me, when a man's in hell, God has suffered long that that person is in hell. You know what, uh, Dan? There, I was thinking yesterday. Did anybody hear the radio show yesterday? Yeah. Uh, it's going to be on again if you miss it. Jan, Mar Jan Markell called me Thursday and said, I think we should go on the radio. She was just going to play reruns. So we need to talk about a tsunami disaster. So we went on and talked about it. But one passage I didn't get to on the radio that I was thinking about was the one in Second Peter 3 where it says mockers will arise in the last days. And where is the promise of his coming? Because everything stayed the same. And the reason that God allows history to go on, which includes, as the longer history goes on, the more suffering there's going to be. The more wars and earthquakes and rumors of war, because it's like birth pains. So the longer history goes on, the worse some of these things are going to be. But the reason for it is a loving and saving reason that God is giving time for our repentance. And if we don't repent, we're not getting the message, right? In some ways, it's just natural that there would be greater and greater problems because most of the problems, you know, as you said on the radio, most of the deaths that happen are men inflicting deaths on men. And the more technology we get, we can kill more people at a time. Yeah. More uh, problems. Yeah. yeah, one of the things I mentioned on the radio yesterday was that this is a, an unbelievable natural disaster. But look at how many more people have been killed intentionally by man. So let's say that now they're talking about 150,000 are killed by a, this earthquake-caused tidal wave. Um, look how many Hitler killed on purpose. Yeah, I mean, millions, millions have been killed intentionally by other men. I thought, I noticed that especially, that, that really came home to me, that, uh, like, the, the 130,000, that's what it is. That's nothing compared to the wars. Yeah, the wars, and look at Stalin's, uh, they say Stalin maybe killed more than Hitler. Yeah, that's true. So I think what's with so the, the, it's interesting, but this raises more questions in people's minds than those other ones, which is as bad as even though all these man-inflicted things are worse, this one is an act of God. Quote, you know, is that this insurance term for it, an act of God? So now they're wondering. Yes, this is an act of God. I, I think you can explain why Hitler would do it, although even that's not kind of beggar's description, but. Um, this was an act of God, so it creates more questions. And I, the answer is, I, th I read the verse on the radio. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Amen. Don't think that you're better off or worse off than somebody. I mean, you're, we're not spared because we're better. And, and, and so uh, this is supposed to lead to repentance. And that's why, that's why history goes on. The whole point is to give people space. So I'm agreeing with you, Dan, on that, that, that people need to repent. They like to make God out like he's heartless. I mean, we're heartless. <laughs> God's merciful. <laughs> well, remember, David, he, David had his choice to have the enemies of, of punish him or fall into God's hands, and he chose God every time. 
Okay, let's get to uh, 1 Timothy 2 5, uh, Olga. Wow, there's one God and one mediator between. This is uh, Hebrews 9.15 is our verse, and it says he's the mediator of a new covenant. The verse that Olga read says that only, the only mediator is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Right? Amen. The only one. There's, there's no pope or bishop or prophet or anybody else that can stand between you and God and mediate on behalf of your sins, in order to have them taken away. Only Jesus can do that. He says, what did he say? Suffer all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may obtain the salvation. So here Paul understands that God has his people that will respond, but haven't yet. So he endures in order to make sure the gospel gets out there, that they hear it. Because he said in Romans 10, how are they going to hear without a preacher? Right? And so, uh, there's nothing more crucial in the world today than that the gospel is clearly preached to all people. Absolutely, the number one thing that needs to happen is for the gospel to be preached. And we don't need to do a thing to embellish it, change it, adulterate it. As the gospel is, is how God chose to use it to save people. Amen. And I don't care. Uh, Lois was telling me a story about somebody that gave her a ride who was telling her that her pastor was really off track, right? And the reason I'm off track is because I'm not promoting the purpose-driven life. And in the conversation went along the lines of, well, how's anybody going to... Yes, me. Yeah, Lois, it's your fault because your pastor's off the track. But what would the dispute is over whether the gospel as it is is what's going to save people or whether you've got to adulterate it or change it to get them in uh, by some other means to make it seem appealing and then try to trick them into becoming a Christian by giving them little doses of truth later. And I said, no, no, no. There's, you can't... Did, any, did Jesus or Peter or Paul or James or anybody else change the gospel to make it appealing to the carnal-minded man? No. So why should we? Well, what they'll say to me is, well, yeah, we believe in all that. It's on our mission. No, it's in our uh, statement of faith. Well, then if it's so good that it's in your statement of faith, why isn't it good enough to preach? <laughs> well, see, if we preach it, they may not like that. I, and the, did you get the article that went out? I have a line in there. I call that boiler boilerplate orthodoxy. Sorry, my ears going. Um, do you know what boilerplate is? Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like a paragraph that a lawyer has in his that he has on every yeah boilerplate is a standard terminology. Yeah, you just stick it in there and say that's what we believe, and then you don't even think about it because it's boilerplate; it just automatic goes on there. And so I call it boilerplate orthodoxy. You stick it on your website, and there, if anybody questions, they can go to our boilerplate. But listen to the sermon; you'll never hear one thing that's in there in that statement. You'll never hear him preach it. 
And, and so uh, I'd suggest that what we believe is what we preach, not what we stick on our boilerplate. Yeah. What you think is going to give you, is going to solve your problems, what you yeah. think is really going to help is what you talk about. Yeah, what's on there. Right. The boilerplate is just sort of lawyer repellent. <laughs> okay. Everybody needs lawyer repellent, by the way. <laughs> Titus 3, 7, I can't remember who had that. Okay, Keith. So, that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs. Okay, now that's, see, there's a lot of concepts in Hebrews 9, 15, and one of them is the promise of eternal inheritance. What we're inheriting here is eternal life, not wealth and health and big cars and Yeah, no, you're in here. Remember that meeting you guys went to, Keith? There was this guy had an anointing for getting your inheritance? Yeah, there was this guy that had the anointing for getting inheritance from the Lord, but it was money. The whole thing was a big scam. All right, so the, the inheritance that we're talking about here is eternal life. It isn't, and which is of far more value than anything on this earth. Amen. This is this stuff's going to burn up. And uh, so we need to keep track about what the inheritance is. Okay, Revelation 5 and 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. By his blood he redeemed us out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. Amen. Now, there's a, isn't that a great missionary idea? God is... So honored to have that he brings to himself. He wants he receives honor when people repent from all the nations that there would be representatives who are blood bought children of God. Amen. And that they might be present at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's a good verse. When you read, uh, I don't have to worry about getting it on the tape nicely. It goes on just as loud as when I'm standing right here. We'll get we you off. We used to go to the old preachers, you know, they never had microphones. <laughs> out the street, there's no microphones. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I can't wait to get you out on the street again this summer, Dan. This year element. Okay, 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. The 
there's, there it is. An inheritance un, in, imperishable, undefiled, and reserved in heaven. And there's no way to get it besides through the gospel. And we won't even really see it until we go to be with the Lord. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't go to that prophetic meeting where the anointing, his heritance anointing is and get it now. I think they're having a show on Benny Hinn. Is that the night where the 60 Minutes is examining all his, he- all his healings? That would be interesting. Is that true? Yeah. Tonight, I think. It's not, I think it's the other program. Yeah. It's about... 2020? Spiritual knockouts. Spiritual knockouts. <laughs> Okay, Romans 8. Let's all turn to this one. Romans 8, 28 through 30. I'm gonna, now I'm going to explain what... I think we've already talked about well enough, but I want to once for all prove that the effectual call has to be distinguished, distinguished, from, distinguished from the external call. It says in Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Right? There's this call. Now is this is this about everybody? No. Exactly. That's see that's why that passage is often misquoted. And people quote Romans eight twenty eight often in as if it means, well everything's gonna work out. Okay? Well no it isn't saying everything's gonna work out. It says that God works all things good for the called, according to his purpose. Those who love God. So for the redeemed, all the things that happen in life are ultimately for our good, uh, vis-a-vis God's purposes. And let's read on and see what this good is that God's working out for the called. Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So now we know what all these things, everything that happens in life that God allows, he is using in our lives for a purpose, and the purpose is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Is that right? Amen. That's what God wants for us, that we would be like Jesus Christ. Not that we would be necessarily successful or powerful or all of whatever we think we may want, but that we'd be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, the next verse uses the term called again. And whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, this is so-called golden chain argument. And it's a, it's. I took it to my logic professor at seminary using logical symbols that we were learning in class made it into a chain, in logic they call it a chain argument. And what a chain argument is basically saying that if this is true of someone, this must be true. And if this is true, this must be true. And if this is true, this must be true. And if any one of those things can be denied, then none of the things are true. In other words, if, it's, if you have a cat, the cat, uh, I mean a normal cat, okay. I mean you could cut the leg off of a cat, but not that I recommend that. But if you have a cat, a cat has four legs, right? Okay. And so you could you could have various descriptors of what's true of all cats and make a chain argument. This has to be true, this has to be true, this has to be true, this has to be true. Otherwise, you don't have a cat because the dog has four legs. 
So you got to narrow it down, right? Well, so this is make, this is a description of what's true for all of the redeemed. And one of the things that's true is the called, right? So if this if that word called always has to mean the universal call, then universalism would be true that all human beings will ultimately be glorified. All right? But we deny that. Because the Bible talks about the judgment seat, or the great white throne judgment, the books being open, the names that are in are not in, the ones that are not in go into the lake of fire, right? So we can't believe in universalism. So therefore, this passage right here would demand that there are two different meanings for the word call. The external call of the gospel that all people hear, and the internal call that convicts the soul that person repents and believes and is saved. And we have no... Okay, here's, here's the other thing that I assert. And this, I have a chapter written about on this Rick Warren book where I explain part, and what part of it I explain this. The reason we don't need to woo people is that there's this assumption that if you make God look better to them based on what, they're, what they think God should be like, then more people will respond. And I, I deny that. I believe that the maximum number of people will respond when the maximum number of people hear the gospel. All right? And that the only thing we need to worry about is that the gospel actually does get out to people's hearing so that they can believe. How will they believe if they don't hear? Now, if I, let's just say I don't believe that. And Rick Warren, I don't believe, believes a thing of what I'm saying. He doesn't. His idea is you've got to get them in. You've got to get them in. Take out the offensive things. Have better music. Uh, have a better entertaining. But that's the, the, the changing the message. Yeah. Like the yeah, we, the cross goes, the blood goes, all these things we're talking about because you never hear those. And so you get them in. It's bait and switch. And then later you tell them, oh, by the way, it's the blood atonement. Well, it won't work. Because then, you know, if you start preaching that, they'd leave. So, um, to maximize the number of people responding, we need to maximize in preaching. We mentioned on, on the radio yesterday I thought of when I saw the all these images on CNN that you see about this whole world disaster, I thought about the passage where Jesus looked out over the fields and he said the, the, the fields are ripe. Uh, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'd send out laborers. Amen. Because this disaster happened in an area where there is the least number of Christians. And there are more unreached people groups and more people who haven't heard and, and very few churches. And so our prayer ought to be, besides praying for the relief that's absolutely necessary, for, so these poor people can rebuild their lives, uh, that, the, the, that the gospel would be planted in these areas. So that it would never be true again that people could live, so many people and never hear the gospel. Yes. Yeah, I, providentially, I guess God has his reason, but hopefully the, we've got to get the gospel into every place, absolutely. Committed to missions, committed to gospel. And that will be how people will respond. Now, it's, it's true that some people groups, there aren't many that do. 
Um, I knew a guy when I was in Bible college who was a missionary to Lebanon, and he faithfully preached the gospel in Lebanon for 20 years, and he had five converts. But you know what? Now God, God has five people in Lebanon that are willing to serve him that wouldn't have been. It, it, it isn't our business how many respond because we can't control that. All right? But it is our business to preach the word accurately and truthfully and with love and compassion that people would know God has this plan. Yeah. Uh, you know, he put the universal call out. Yeah. Yes. John six forty four says no one can come to me unless yes. the Father draws. Exactly. So we don't know who those people are out there. But, right. But there has to be that element and it seems like a lot of churches think that if you just do enough things, man can make it happen without God. Without a work of God. Yeah. Right. That's exactly where they get off track. And there's another passage, Romans nine twenty four. Well we had twenty three and twenty four where he uses this term called in the same way that, uh, that we're using it here. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Right, so these vessels of mercy that he prepared beforehand before glory, as you said, um, Norm, we don't know who, the, we, there's no way any man knows who those people are. No. The only thing we can know about that is that is after the fact, and we also know God chose Israel and Abraham. Yeah, in regard to salvation, it's just some, but in regard to their national identity. Uh, so, it, I, I'm not ashamed of anything it says in the Bible, even whether it's popular or not popular. But if we keep on track with our message of preaching the gospel, we cannot be failing. I mean, we need some objective criteria from God to know if we're doing the right thing or not. If you just go by the circumstances and by the results, you'll be tempted to bail out of God's plan because it may appear not to be working. <laughs> and I think that's what's going on. I Honestly, when I get emails from these people around the country whose churches have jettisoned the Word of God, jettisoned the Bible, and jettisoned the Gospel in favor of man-centered ministry, some of them have said, well, our pastor, was, the church was doing so poorly, he just, didn't, he just didn't feel like he could survive. He had to do something. And so they changed it, and now they've got people coming. But um, it's better to sell your building and move into a smaller one and preach the gospel to less people than to fill a big building without the gospel. Would, would we agree to that? I mean, we agreed to that when we put this place up for sale, actually. So. Uh, Dan and then Keith. The world feigns ignorance. Gandhi uh, had the wheel of reincarnation. India's got 350 million gods plus Christ. Gandhi himself said that we have cow worship. The difference between a Christian and us Hindus is we have cow worship and you have Christ worship. The world's not ignorant of who Christ is. 
And the Arabs know who Jesus is. The Jews think he's a good man. I saw tracks pass to them and they could profane. When that person walked away profane, a wonderful looking Jewish woman profane Jesus like I never heard before. They know who Jesus is. The atheists know the gospel is clear as a bell, except they don't believe it. In fact, the atheists know it better than most churchgoers, except they don't believe it. The world feigns ignorance. They're not ignorant. They're guilty when they go to hell. And all of heaven proclaims God. They know more about Jesus, these ignorant, supposedly ignorant people, than a lot of them in church. They're not ignorant. Like Gandhi said, we have cow worship and you have Christ worship. He told a, a billion Hindus that. So they're not as ignorant as everybody thinks that the gospel has been out there. And then God says, you don't want to believe. Look at the heavens. They proclaim my glory. Cry out to me. But you know, Dan, one thing uh, I think that we need to make a distinction, yeah. though. I would uh, I would say that you're talking about general revelation. Yeah, they, just, they know there's a God, and and there and, and a lot of people know specifically some things about the gospel. General revelation is enough knowledge to make you guilty before God. Amen. All right, accountable Amen. according to Romans one, but it isn't enough to no, save no, you. That's why the we need to preach the cross. Exactly. That people might be saved. Uh, there's enough out there to be accountable right there. If you ever saw a sunset, you're accountable to God. They just saw the cross, a billion people with this new movie, The Passion. I mean, they saw the blood, the cross. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they got, they're not. They're, Jesus says, they are without excuse. I totally agree. God is not a liar. Okay, Keith. You can't change the message. And I agree. There's nothing wrong with trying to get parking for people. All right. Um, we've got a better sound up there now because a couple of years ago, a family came, and whose guy was a professional sound guy, and sat through a service, and then he came back the next week. He says, don't you think it would be nice if people could hear what you're preaching? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so now we just got a new mic, too, for the preaching. Now you can hear well, so that's, that's, that's not being seeker. That's just being sensible. Of course, the gospel needs to be heard if people are going to understand it. But when you change the message, I agree with you, Keith. You know, you can try to be more efficient and try to be better use of your budget and better use of how, how many people you can reach for what resources you have. But you can't change the message. And like Luther says, it can't be changed because it's not mine to change. It's God's. God, God owns the message, not us. And we can't, it's not our business um, and I'm going to preach from Matthew 24 this morning when Jesus said um, that his words are, are going to abide forever. They Amen. will not change. His words will not change. So that's the ones we got to preach. Yep. Amen. So we're going to talk about that. Hebrews 9.16. Okay, we're talking about this new covenant. So the new covenant, there was a death. There's re- Christ's death. There's redemption of transgressions through the blood atonement. The called receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That's what we've been talking about. Now, verse 16. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. And for a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced once while the one who made it lives. 
Now, this is obviously talking about the fact that Christ died in order to um, enact this covenant. Now, inaugurate the covenant. That's true. Every once in a while, some different kids try to speed that process along, don't they? They get in the paper and they do that. They end up going to jail. A little arsenic in the coffee. (laughs) It's a good thing nobody would ever be tempted to do that with me. <laughs> Genesis. Um, I think there, part of this enacting of a covenant with death may be an allusion to what happened in the Old Testament, where there was always a death of an animal. And the one that's most interesting, I think, is Genesis 10, uh, Genesis 15:10 to 17. Let's all turn with that because it's quite a few verses. Genesis 15:10 to 17 shows a, a case where. In this case, it was the animal that died in order that the covenant may be ratified. Uh, Genesis 15.10. Okay, it says here, Genesis 15.10, Then he brought all... um, Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two. Now, this was the heifer, the goat, the ram, the turtle dove, and the pigeon. He took all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of the prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and a great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years, But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, uh, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And so there was this... Um, enactment of a covenant ceremony. And the reason we know this covenant was unilateral is that only God walked through the pieces. Amen. And what they used to do, literally, in, this ancient, in the ancient Near East, was they'd take like this big cow, cut them in two. Late, I mean, it'd be kind of a mess, right? right? And you put half over here and half over here. And then the two parties that were agreeing on whatever covenant they agreed, they'd walk between the pieces and say, may God do to me what happened to this cow if I don't keep my word. Oh. <laughs> All right, that's, <laughs> that's very, uh, I mean, you, you, in other words, you don't do this unless you mean it. And so in a sense, the death, in this case of the animal, is a ratification of the covenant. Now, the... What's coming out of this in Hebrews is the idea that Jesus is the one who died. And that this death ratifies the new covenant and it signifies the certainty and um, the fact that it will not ultimately be violated. 
the covenant between God and his people ratified by the death of Jesus, ensuring them their eternal inheritance, is absolute because it's based on God who cannot lie. And and just like and so God walked through the pieces with Abraham, and Jesus ratifies the new covenant, and it's just as certain as the one that God made. Yes. What's that? Okay. The, the question was, who are the Amorites? The Amorites are probably are inhabitants of the land of Canaan that God had promised Abraham. And they is probably a metonymy, which is a figure of speech which, in which the part signifies the whole. All right. So the Amorites are signify the inhabitants of Canaan, them and what other other tribes are there, and what 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 God is saying to Abraham is, I'm going to give this land to your inheritance to your people, but not for 400 years, because the people there aren't wicked enough yet to justify wiping them out. And so what God intended to do, which was told ahead of time, was that Abraham's descendant would end up in Egypt for those years, serving Pharaoh because of the thing with Joseph, right? And during this time, these Amorites are getting more wicked and doing more nasty things in their, in their human sacrifices and everything they did. So that the God felt that it was, they were bad enough to be warned just wiping them out of the land. And then he sent back Israel through the wilderness to take the land. That's what it means. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, he was. Yeah. Exactly, and that—that's exactly what they said when he was dying. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was on the cross, they—they they, they said to him. If you come down, we'll believe in you. And so that's what makes the cross so offensive. And, it just, and I was just quoting that in the, a chapter I wrote about Rick, for, about Rick Ward. Is that people are willing to embrace Christianity with, as long as it doesn't bring the cross with it. Yeah. One of the illustrations, by the way, that I use is from John 6. Because when Jesus multiplied the bread and everybody was fed, they wanted to make him king. All right? Well, then, so they, Jesus walked in water and the people got in boats and went around and found him again. And, and he says, you don't, you're not seeking me because you believe the sign. In other words, you saw signs are just supposed to make them believe. You just want bread. Amen. And, they, and they basically agreed with him. They said, yeah. Uh, they had said earlier, oh, you're the prophet that came into the world, which is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses promised a prophet that would come. So they saw Jesus as the new Moses. And so what they said to Jesus was, well, if you're the prophet coming into the world, you've got to be greater than Moses. I'm telling you what they're thinking. So therefore, Moses gave us manna. Where's the bread? And Jesus said, all right, here it is. The bread is my flesh for the life of the world. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life within you. What? And then they got mad, and all of them left but a little handful. All right? 
And so, universally, the cross offends people. And Jesus said in that same chapter, no one can come to me unless the Father draw him. And so basically, the point is, preach the message of the cross. I know that it's offensive, but God will use it to draw people to himself that are going to believe the gospel. Amen. Amen. And, and in my own mind, if I don't verbalize this stuff, I say, well, there is a question. You know, I have to verbalize that question. And, and my faith is increased. Well, confessing there means a willingness to profess that the basis of your salvation is on Christ alone and his, his death and his resurrection. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confessing in the New Testament was very important, and it also was the distinction, distinction between person being persecuted or not. In these churches in Revelation, if you're willing to deny or just to be silent about it, they'll just leave you alone. But if you were confessing, they were killing you. And Yeah, so, uh, yeah, as I was saying earlier about boilerplate orthodoxy, what you put on your website may just be there to, for lawyer repellent. If anybody comes along and says, well, you got bad doctrine, you just point them to the website, and there's a statement of faith that you copied and pasted off of John MacArthur's website. So there, see, I'm, I'm as good as they get. But then... When they come to the church and listen to what comes out of the pulpit, they don't hear one word ever of all those things in that statement. That's right. So that's not. So I would say that that's not confessing. That's right. yeah. If we're not actually willing to verbalize it, we're not confessing. Yeah. All right. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Amen. You should find. We should hear about the blood atonement. Dan, you're preaching my sermon. I'm going to preach on that. <laughs> don't, don't steal all my thunder. I was going to preach on Noah today. <laughs> well, you had to have a lot of faith to build an ark when you'd never seen rain. <laughs> let, me, let me read from William Lane, a fantastic scholar on, uh, who was discussing... I just love his commentaries. He has one on Mark and one on Hebrews, William Lane. But he's talking about this covenant procedure here. He said the, the, me, the meaning of this term here 
is qualified by its meaning in verse 15, where the proper frame of reference is uh, the death of the covenant victim. Okay? The death of the victim. Now, here's what he says. The necessity for a death is rooted in a covenant procedure. In the Old Testament, ratification of a covenant based on sacrifice frequently entailed a self-maledictory procedure. Self-maledictory, that is invoking some bad thing on yourself. Uh, The ratifying party invoked a curse upon himself when he swore commitment to comply with the terms of the covenant. In the transaction, the ratifying party was represented by animals designated for sacrifice. The bloody dismemberment of the representative animal signified the violent death of the ratifying party if he proved faithless to his oath. Now, this is going to come up in chapter 10. We're in chapter 9. In chapter 10, when when he warns against apostasy, the writer of Hebrews says that if you do, if you apostatize, that you're trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant by which you were saved. Amen. Okay? So, in other words, you would be actually invoking that type of a curse on yourself. Were you to confess Christ and serve Him and then later deny Him and go on your old sinful ways without Christ, that that would actually be invoking this covenant curse by trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant. Yes? <laughs> okay. Yeah, of course, Jesus said to let your yes be yes and your no be no. You never know what, what's going to happen. I, there was this, the very first church I was in up here in Minneapolis when I was a brand new Christian, it was a little bitty church up in North St. Paul. There was a guy that used to go there who was a chronic liar. The pastor told me the, told me this story. This guy was lying about everything, and they were confronting him about it, and he couldn't believe a word he said because he was always lying. And finally, one time, they got him into the pastor's office, and the pastor and one of the elders was in there. And, and they said, we need you to tell the truth. You've been lying to everybody in church. And he says, this is the truth. And he, said, and he was telling them this lie. And he says, and if this is the lie, may the fire from God come down and strike me dead right on the spot. And the two of them ran out of the room. <laughs> You never know when God might actually do it. <laughs> Don't say that while we're in the room. Because <laughs> we know you're a liar. <laughs> yes. Yes. He'll forgive us. Yeah, I would distinguish apostasy, and we'll get to this when we get into Hebrews 10. It's not that a Christian sins, but it's that someone rebels against Christ and says, no, I won't serve Him. We'll go on willfully sinning is the term there. saying, And it comes from back in Numbers 15. The one who obstinately and defiantly sins is cut off. The person who confesses their sin is forgiven. Okay. Okay, verse 17. Let's see if we can get actually... And if we got three verses in one Sunday school, that would be something else. For the covenant is only valid when men are dead. It is never enforced while one has made it lives. So, again, uh, William Lane goes back to Genesis 15 on this. 
until the oath of allegiance had been sworn and validated by the action of cutting the animal in two and walking between the pieces, the covenant remained merely tentative. It was legally confirmed on the basis of the dismembered bodies of the sacrificial animals. So, so is with the new covenant. It was announced already in the Old Testament under in Jeremiah 31 that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and I will take away their sins. But it's not actually ratified until Jesus actually dies. Amen. And the blood ratifies the covenant. Now it's in effect. Before the new covenant wasn't in effect, they were looking forward to it. But until the death takes place, it's not ratified. Amen. That's what is Hebrews... Right, it was a it was a real promise, but it doesn't happen until the death, and, that's, and this illustrates the new covenant. But now that the death has taken place, the inheritance is there, and all who believe will receive this eternal inheritance, Amen. which is the riches of Christ. And we and I have not seen nor has ear heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. Amen. And, uh, uh, and they used to have an old song when I was. Bible college and the half has not yet been told. Anybody else remember that line in an old, an old gospel song? And the half has not yet been told. So that I believe to be true. Amen. <laughs> and today, um, in the service, as, as we conclude the Sunday school here, we're going to there, we there's a my daughter created a little video collage about this tsunami disaster that has some music and then some scripture that's referencing Noah. And we're going to watch that. And then, after, and then I'm going to preach on the, the, uh, from Matthew 24 about the return of Jesus Christ, the soon return of Christ. And then we're going to conclude with this Noah there, idea that it, as it, it was in the days of Noah, so it will be. And I believe we're living in those days. Yes. The soon return of the Lord. We need to be prepared. You know, in regard to those of your various radio programs, they're not Christians, but they're talking about God. And, you know, with Rick Warren, we paint ourselves in the corner as Christians because God is a loving God only, and He wouldn't do that. So now how do you reconcile this? And, you you know, they don't understand that God is angry with sin every day, and in that Amen. And they can't accept that because Amen. they painted themselves in another corner where they won't, there's no, uh, no way out. Yeah, they just have the loving part of God without the just part. And you know what Jesus, as we said on the radio yesterday from Luke, the tower fell on these people. Well, then our immediate thing is if, if you believe in God, well, then God judged them because they're worse sinners than I am. And, and Jesus said, no. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, and don't think that they're any more sinful than you are. And uh, so the message is in the Bible, but we need to get it out because people aren't going to get it from the news. No. <laughs> okay. All right. God bless you, and we have a, a 25, 30 minutes of fellowship here, and then the service will start.